You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, we're going through the Bible in a year. We're in the book of Esther this week. And as I've been preparing this message, Esther actually sort of became this week my favorite Old Testament book. It's just an incredible story of God's faithfulness. And uh, as uh, we wish you happy Mother's Day this morning and got to celebrate some great things like the families who are up here, Anessa's baptism, just an awesome morning. Uh, we all, just as your pastor, also acknowledge that uh, Mother's Day, I know, is hard for some of our church members. If it's missing your mom or, or desires to be a mom, like I, I'm, I'm well aware of that. Uh, so as we celebrate moms rightfully so today and give honor where honor is due, we don't forget you. And I just wanted you to know that. And as we forget you, as, as we forget, f- refuse to forget you, we also don't forget to honor as well. And also, it's just an important reminder not to be like Debbie Downer on the day, uh, but Mother's Day is also like a culturally created holiday, which means it's not the end all of end all, like this day. It's a day to give honor where honor is due, and a day to pray for God to give you the, really the, the pleading of your heart, as we read in the Psalms earlier or to comfort you during a time where maybe you miss your mom a lot, whatever it might be. I just want you to know that I'm aware of that. We don't forget that. And as a church family, we all are in that together, and it matters a lot. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are thankful uh, for your word that you've given to us. We ask to be faithful in presenting it and understanding it. Uh, We need your spirit uh, to be able to understand what it is that you've had to tell us, and we rejoice because we have your spirit, those who are in Christ. I ask that you continue to be with those families we brought before the church today. We are so thankful for them, for Nessa's baptism. We worship you for that. We celebrate that decision she has made to go public with the faith that she has in Christ. And also for those who are moms here today, we we just thank you for them. Uh, For those who this day is a tough day, Lord, we just ask you to be with them. That so many of the Psalms uh, ask the question, how long, O Lord? Lord, where are you? Lord, I, I need you. I cry out to you. Lord, we know that you are there. You answer prayers for your people and the greatest blessing you give us is yourself. And we are thankful for all those who are in Christ that we have you as our Father. We are in relationship with you and that we are your bride. What an awesome thing. We actually be all the churches in our city as they gather today as we know we're not the only ones doing this, uh, that our churches will be faithful across the city and that you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our town. In the name of Jesus, amen. A little bit of a rough Mother's Day start at my house this morning. Uh, I woke Chrissy up on Mother's Day, and I was like, hey, can you iron my shirt? So that was a really strong start. Yeah, really strong. Uh, So here's a book of Esther. So God is at work everywhere, Stephen Whitmer says. He's at work everywhere. But very often, we don't see him. Very often, you can relate to this, his hand seems hidden. Maybe we see it, but only after the fact. Or perhaps we only ultimately see it in heaven. The author of Esther is going to give us a picture of what life actually feels like. The setting is 100 years after exile around there. It's in Susa, which is the capital of Persia at the time. And there's some main characters, uh, two Jews named Mordecai and Esther, who are in exile. And then there's the king of Persia and also Haman, who's going to be the antagonist in this story, who has of Canaanite descent. Uh, the Canaanites were people who were longtime enemies of God's people. And this book was written for several reasons, but a major one is to tell the origins of the Feast of Purim, which we'll get into in a minute a little bit, uh, to ensure it would be observed by future generations. That God greatly cares that his name and his faithfulness will be remembered for generations. That's why we stand up family when they come here for a parent commissioning. 
It's not just a nice gesture we try to do to include everyone, but to say, no, we're seeing God's faithfulness remembered for generations, and that matters so much. So thank you all who are here today for this day. It matters tremendously. In the biblical book of Esther, we're going to see the Jews are in great danger. They're a religious minority who are living in Persia, a society that's dominated by values and a spiritual life that should be nothing like the Jewish people. We'll just call it, not, it's not even a secular society, it's a pagan God society, kind of all the above. It's, it's multiple idols. So the Jews have no king, no army, no land, and powerful forces don't want them to exist. Now in the past, when God's people have been in trouble throughout the Old Testament, uh, he sent kind of miraculous signs and wonders. You know, we see a burning bush and parting the Red Sea, Jericho falling down, but here he seems absent. In fact, in the book of Esther, did you know that God's name is not mentioned one time? There is no mention of God in a book of the Bible. How strange does that sound? There's no special vision or special dream or prophecy or even a prayer. And if you believe that the Bible is simply of human authorship and not divine, the question you would ask is, is this an accidental oversight? Do we just kind of mess up here to the writer? But if you believe that God has written every word of the scriptures through human authors, we ask the question, could this actually be the point of the story omitting the name of God? And I actually think Esther is maybe the easiest story in the Old Testament for us to relate to because right now living in 2021 as Christians, we, don't ha- we, we actually have God's word completed. We don't audibly need to hear him or do we hear him anymore? Because all the words he has for us, he has in the scriptures. So even though we have all of what God wants us to know, we can feel like he's absent because we don't physically see him audibly hear him. So the story is that King Hashuerus, who's also known as Xerxes, that he is parading around his wealth, basically having a big party to declare how awesome he is and how rich he is and how powerful he is. Those parties still kind of exist today. And one of the things he wanted to do was basically parade his wife around, Vashti. And she was like, no thanks, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. So as a result, he became enraged, and we see this, that he said that Vashti is not to enter King Hashuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. So he's going to say, she's not queen anymore, she's not my wife anymore, because she wouldn't come parade herself around my party. So uh, not, not the nicest guy on the block here that must have it together. The king's personal attendants suggested Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them out, put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. I mean, what a backwards culture and what a time. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. The suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. And the fortress of Susa were told there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, 
who is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. I need to find that accelerated process for myself, a beauty treatments and accelerated diet. Sounds fantastic. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants for, to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity. Remember, she's Jewish. Or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. And Esther has a book named after her. She's viewed as a heroic character, but her character is unique in exile. Most of these highlighted figures in exile are, are kind of presented as heroes or devout, really zealous for the cause of the Jews, the cause of being God's people. And Esther begins her story as a Jewish girl named Hadassah, but now she's living with a Persian name a name that honors the ancient Near Eastern goddess Ishtar. Under the care of her cousin, now adopted father Mordecai, a name that honors the god Marduk. I mean, these names alone should set off alarm bells when we read this story. Nehemiah, in his book, dragged people into the streets and beat them for lesser offenses, abandoning their Jewishness altogether. And not only do they pass as Persians, where people think they are, Esther willingly collaborates with the palace harem. This is not against her will here. She's collaborating in preparation for her time that evening with the king, eating their food and doing whatever else might be described as preparations, as they call it in the scriptures. In other words, Esther is not a Daniel. She's not part of the Jewish resistance standing up for the people of God and being distinct in a land that's not their own. We see this, the king loved Esther, chapter two, more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. She's celebrated now. She has this status. And during these days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Hashuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, so he hears these people who want to kill the king. So Mordecai, again, who's Jewish here, but has a Persian name, learned of the plot. He reported to Queen Esther, again, his relative, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. And this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So we see out of the gate here, Mordecai starting to be a player in the story. And as the story unfolds, the king, who now is erratic and paranoid, as any leader would be when there's a bounty for his life, he appoints someone named Haman who's given unprecedented authority in the king's realm over his kingdom, and Haman is a descendant of Agag, who's an Amalekite. They're the Canaanite people, 
And the Amalekites were some of Israel's most vicious and heartless enemies. If you're new here, we've been going through the Bible for a year. We're, like, we're now in Esther, obviously, and we're just rolling through every week a different book of the Bible. We've seen, spent much time talking about the Canaanites and the people who are the enemies of God. And now here we are, and one of those great enemies has been appointed, has been appointed to be basically the king's right hand. Haman is far more than just a political piece in the story. He's a symbolization. He's the embodiment in his role and also in his identity as, a, as someone of Canaanite descent. In other words, a picture of an enemy towards God's people. Corrupt, an idolater, godless. And we see after all this took place, King Hashuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff of the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But we see a word show up in the Bible we talk about a lot here. And that's the word, but. But Mordecai. But there's someone who's an exception. He would not bow down or pay homage. Or homage, however you pronounce that word in your preference. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. So he got word out about who he really was. And even though Mordecai had been totally immersed in a secular culture, sometimes it takes a moment where it clicks in your head and go, wait a second, I'm not of those people. Maybe sometimes you wander. The world pulls you in, it entices you, and then something happens to make you go, wait a second, I don't belong to the world, I belong to, I belong to the Lord. I belong to God, I'm not gonna bow down to the things of this world, even though I've been doing it figuratively over and over again. Something clicked with Mordecai in this moment. When Haman saw Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage, because he wanted to receive worship. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, had seemed repugnant to Haman to go away with Mordecai, to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout Hashuerus' kingdom. So a decree is made that everyone in the kingdom must now bow down before Haman, and something in Mordecai, get it awakens. He, he can't bow to Haman. He actually tells them, I'm Jewish. I'm one of God's people. And as compromised as his life may have been up to this point, his rise to power that he sees happen to Haman actually brings him back to God. And his identity of one of God's chosen people, he will not bow, and in retribution, Haman convinces the king to put out an order that will mean genocide for all of God's people, the Jews in Persia. In the first month, the month of Nisan, the king Hashuerus' 12th year, the pur that, the pur that is, the lot was cast before Haman for each day and each month and fell in the 12th month, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Hashuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different for everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. So the king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. It's an important inclusion there. 
And the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you, do with as you see fit. Let's go get rid of these people once and for all that won't bow down to us. But what do you know in the story? Esther, this whole time, is living comfortably as the Persian queen with no one suspecting that she's Jewish. And she's a relative of the man who actually saved the king's life when he heard the eunuchs saying they were going to basically assassinate him. So we see this happen. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction. Mordecai's moving here so that Hafek might show it to Esther. So he has a little messenger here. Explain it to her and command her to approach the king, implore his favor. She might not have even known it. She didn't even know about this and plead with him personally for her people, her actual people that she basically had forgotten about. And not even maliciously, but just going into the things of this world. Haddock came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Haddock and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned the death penalty. Unless the king extends the gold scepter allowing that person to live, I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you'll escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. When they find out, you're not gonna get a special exemption. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. As in, God's going to take care of his people, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Some very famous words in the Bible, used in secular culture, used often for such a time as this. It's used in political conversation. It's all over the place. She's saying, do not think that because you're in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, like, like relief and deliverance is gonna come from another place, but, but you and your father's family are going to perish. And here's the deal, Esther. Maybe God has you, he doesn't use God's name. But reading this hundreds and hundreds of years later, maybe God has you there, we can see for such a time as this. Preachers and motivational speakers are really fond of quoting this last sentence of Mordecai's speech. But I think the most fascinating section is the sentence before it, where Mordecai expresses his faith that God will rescue the Jews. Where he says deliverance will come from somewhere else, but he warns her of a greater loss. You and your family, though, are going to perish. See, Esther's an orphan, as the story tells us, and Mordecai is essentially warning her that if she refuses to stand for the Jews now, her people, she's going to forfeit her place in her father's family. That her family line is going to end, and she will live and die as a Persian, cut off from the promises of God. So we can say that Esther is at a crossroads, and it's this moment that motivates her to act. She has her light bulb go off moment about who she is and who she ultimately belongs to, who is the Lord. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, chapter four. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. 
Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I'll go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. To go and, and have a request to the king, if it was not in the exact perfect way the king wanted it, would result in death in this culture. She said, you know what? If I die, I die. It reminds me of Paul in Philippians chapter one. He said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I live, I live. I'll live for the glory of God and his mission, but if I die, I die, and I gain everlasting life. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Think about this for a moment. As the world around us applies pressure, trying to move us away from our Christian identity, to abandon certain historic, scriptural doctrines and principles and beliefs and core theology, we have to ask whether we want to be part of the family of God or not. Do we want to identify with God and his people regardless of the social cost? Are we able to endure kind of an American version of persecution and ridicule for the sake of our inheritance with God? Are we willing to do this? I think that time is coming, I'm not an alarmist, but we're gonna see those who are just Christian in name only, who are hat-tipped to God, cultural Christians, whatever it might be, begin to be nowhere found altogether. Either you're gonna follow Jesus or you're not. We already kind of see happen on the West Coast where there's not like really confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. Of course, there's exceptions. Like if you're a Christian, you're like a Christian. Like you follow Jesus. If you live in New England, like there's not really many like on the fence people up there when it comes to Christ. Very few of the population are Christians. The, one that, the ones that are are sold out to the Lord and to his mission through their local church. And then Haman, based on all of this, walks into what Mike Cosper calls a Shakespearean downfall. From the top of the ladder to a different kind of fate. Since Mordecai is Jewish, chapter six, and you begin to fall before him, he won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. Even the people knew that God's people, that God would ultimately deliver them and had a purpose for them. Queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request, and spare my people. Now that's who she's identifying with, with God's people. This is my desire for my people, and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. And if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Hashuerah spoke up and asked King Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Who wants to kill my wife and all of her people? And Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs said, this is a gallows, there is a gallows, 70 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. Haman built at the gallows, a place for Mordecai to be executed or to die capital offense. And now the tables have flipped and the same things they're gonna use for Mordecai are now gonna be used for Haman. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. 
The same day, King Eshuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. What a swing and change of events. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. Because the, the edict, we could say, was still out there. The king extended the gold scepter towards Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Hashuerah said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, look, I've given Haman's estate to Esther and he, is, he was hanged in the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with a royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with a royal signet ring cannot be revoked. Esther's appeals led to the rescue of God's people. Esther and Mordecai rise to prominence in the king's court. And remember, they called the lot they cast pure earlier, and that's why now they're going to have a festival called Purim which the Jewish people are going to inaugurate. For Haman, son of Hamadath of the Agites, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pure, that is the lot, to crush and destroy him. When the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews were turned on his own head and that it should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim from the world pure because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life, and their memory will not fade from their descendants." It reminds me of the Exodus. That God over and over again would remind his people, here was your fate and here is what I have done for you. So what do I want you to do? I want you to take the Passover and remember it. I'm convinced that one of the ways as Christians we navigate through this secular, godless culture, not that we're perfect, not that we're these shining examples of what it means to know God. We're all a work in progress dependent upon the grace of God. One of the only ways we can actually, I believe, continue to flourish as the people of God in a place that's so hostile to it called this world is to remember. Remember who we belong to. Remember our first identity. Remember that what God, the lengths he went to to make a people for himself, to purchase us, to redeem us, to forgive us, that it cost Jesus his life. They died a death that we deserved because of our sins. So as a result, we're declared not guilty, forgiven, made right. And then the last step of this book, I think is one of the most significant things that happens. See, Purim isn't just a celebration of this particular story. It's also a celebration of Jewish identity. In other words, their identity as the people of God. In this book, God and Politics in Esther, which is an interesting read, philosopher Yorham Hazani writes, the fact is that in Persia, being a Jew became for the first time in history a matter of choice. 
and a choice that had to be faced by every individual. In the thousand years since Sinai, the Jews had strayed from observance of the law. The law of Moses, time and time again they went away from it, but their identity as Jews had never been subject to their own volition. It was only after the dispersal through Babylon and Persia that an individual born as a Jew found himself immediate, constant, and in personal contact with other possible identities. All kinds of identities they could have chosen. And they had to choose for themselves whether Jewishness should be something he or she would maintain or something that they would hide. Sinai was the founding of a Jewish people whose members have no, had no real alternative at that time but to be Jewish and to take part in their unique history as the people of God. But here the Persian Empire represented the refounding of the Jewish people on an entirely different basis. Since each Jew was from birth exposed to other options, his, his, his entrance into the people of God would be voluntary. They would respond to their convictions about who God was. But there was only one God and his name was Yahweh. And they would choose to follow him and denounce all other gods. So Purim then celebrates this re-identification as God's people. And there are some glaring moral issues here. Nobody ever refers to Esther as godly. She's called beautiful. Her appearance is always what's elevated as the big deal. And that shows us that the ultimate deliverer of God's people is not a human being, but it is God himself. And how that's ultimately realized is through the work of Christ, that, that he's the center of the stage of the book, even though his name isn't mentioned. That God's name does not, not Lord, God, a version of it, none of it does not come up one time in the book. But he's the hero of the entire story. If you don't believe in God's sovereignty and, and delivering his people, then everything in your life and in this story just happens. Esther just happened to be beautiful. Esther just happened to be noticed by the king. Mordecai just happened to be related to Esther. He just happened to hear the plot of the king's life. His adopted daughter just happened to be queen. Here's the reality. The powers that seem in control are not in control. The trajectory that seems inevitable is not inevitable. Think about your own life. Do you know that God worked out? I, I really believe, I believe in God's sovereignty over salvation. I believe we cannot save ourselves. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. I believe that God starts, carries, and finishes our salvation. I don't think that I can even believe God, 1 Corinthians says, unless it's revealed to me, unless God allows me to. I'm fully dependent on him to do the work. It's by grace I've been saved, not through work so that no one can boast. That it is all God's. So I saw this story, all the things that just happened, these coincidences that, oh, just were random. It's like, wait a second, no, no, no. That God has orchestrated all of these events to carry out his salvation plan for his people, understood ultimately, and the one who would come from this line, who is Jesus Christ himself. I thought about my own life. It's like, wow, did it just so happen, just so happen that my dad's high school track coach from Stranahan High School in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, became the assistant superintendent of schools in Leon County. 
and it just so happened that he called my dad and said, we're opening up a new middle school here, and I want you to become an administrator at it. It's called Deer Lake. And my dad said, that'd be great. We want to get out of South Florida, but I've already put these years into the Florida retirement, so I'd like to stay in state. So let's go as far away as we can and still stay in state. Well, here we are. And if that would happen, that I'd go to that same middle school, and I'd meet someone at that school who was one of my friends who would invite me to their mom's, her family's house to go to a thing called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And at that FCA meeting, for the first time in my life, I'd hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I was a sinner who needed to be saved. And that salvation was available to me through trusting in Jesus and repenting of my sins and believing what's called the gospel by faith. I don't, I, that might sound self-centered. No, no, it's the opposite of that. It's that God is working in all of our lives to redeem the people to themselves. And each one of you has your own story of not coincidences of not things that just happen. I am convinced, you might think I'm crazy, I'm convinced that, that, and then I saw my brother get saved and my sister get saved. But like, I, I'm convinced that God brought us to the city to bring us to himself. Could he have done that in Fort Lauderdale? Of course he could have. He does it every day in Fort Lauderdale. I hope there's churches preaching the gospel everywhere there. But this was our story. And then he had, and now we have a church the town that we moved to in 1990. It's just God does the work and he's doing the same in your life. That's your story as well, how you came to faith. That God worked out the details. Maybe it was being born in the family you were born in. Maybe it was meeting a friend in college. Maybe it was being invited to a church service. Maybe it was reading a Bible when you had a rough day. Like whatever it might have been. Karen Job says this, beneath the, surface of even, beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can neither be explained nor thwarted. That God is at work relentlessly to redeem a people for himself. And he's just so gonna put Esther in next to the king in order to make his glory known in doing so. I wanna conclude with Romans chapter eight, verses 28 through about 30 to 35. Because to me, the Esther story, I really believe this through my study, is a living, active, character, plot story of Romans chapter eight. Here's what we see. We know, there's a certainty here, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, as in those who are God's people. This does not apply to everyone in the world. Who are God's people? People who are called according to his purpose. We're called to salvation. For those he foreknew, he's been working this plan. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So he'd be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. He declared not guilty of their sins because Christ was guilty in our place, the legal declaration. As he justified, he also glorified that one day we will be with Christ forever, new bodies, full righteous. Then he asks a great question. What then are we to say about these things? How do we respond to that? And here's the answer. If God's for us, who can be against us? And that's not a battle cry for high school graduation. That's not a battle cry to win the football game. It means that if God is for our salvation, 
and is working out all things in our lives together to make us more like Jesus for our good, even when we don't see it, then he definitely makes it sure and true that nothing else or no one can be against us. He goes, you want some proof? Well, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How then will you not also with him grant us everything? He goes, hey, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Against God's people? Look what he's done. Read Esther. Read Exodus. Look at the cross and the resurrection. He goes, who can bring an accusation against God's elect, against God's people? He says, God's the one who justifies, not anyone else. I don't need to depend on someone else's justification. I have God's. He goes, who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he's been raised. He's at the right hand of God, as in this worked. He's alive right now, intercedes for us. We can trust him. Like, we know the whole plan. We don't gotta look for God's name in the story because we see once and for all throughout history that he has written and accomplished his plan and his people are part of it. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can Haman, can the king of Persia, can my mistakes, can my really crappy Mother's Day, can my pain, can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is a resounding, flashing neon lights, no. Why? Because God is the one who's working all things together for our good to make us more like Christ and redeem a people for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word that you have given to us. And as we conclude with this last song, we sing your praises, your great name, and we celebrate you, your deliverance of your people, and how you are always working out your plans for our glory, for your glory, excuse me, and our good. Help us to believe that, that you will not share your glory with another, that you are jealous for your name, that even the king of the powerful empire cannot change your plans. And on a simple local level, our mistakes can't change your plans. There's more grace in you than there is sin in us. You know, the sin in us is tremendous. We are totally depraved people apart from Christ. You have made us alive. So now we worship you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing one last song before we head out today.